trust you're having a great summer. We've had some beautiful days, and, uh, and even yesterday was a beautiful day. It was a cracking great summer storm, something I always enjoy. Uh, I, ho I hope you were in a dry place to experience it. I have uh, seen that uh, people use the summer days, the summer Sundays, to travel around to different churches uh, to look at uh, what other people are doing, perhaps with a possibility of, uh, of moving their, uh, their family to that church, and we call it church hopping. Uh, in our study of the seven churches of Revelation, that's exactly what we've been doing. We've been doing a little virtual church hopping, looking at seven, seven different churches that the Lord describes in the book of Revelation. And uh, Jesus sends letters to these churches to commend them, to advise them, to encourage them. And this is what we've been looking at for the past two months. It is the Lord who loves the church the most. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. These were seven literal churches in the, the area of uh, Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. And uh, during the Apostle John's time, he'd probably visited these very churches and preached in them and cared for them as a faithful servant of the Lord. Each one of them was different, and uh, they had varying strengths and varying weaknesses, just like the churches of today across this world. There's no perfect church. There's only a perfect Savior. There's none without some trouble testing it and some problem afflicting it. Now, if you find a perfect church in your travels, don't join it because then it wouldn't be perfect anymore. There's a story of uh, some travelers across the sea who rescued a man from a desert island where he'd been marooned for a long time, all alone there. And on it were three buildings he'd built, so the rescuer inquired about them, and, and uh, the guy ex explained, uh, yeah, that first uh, place is my home, and the second one is my church. Well, what about the third building, the rescuer asked. Oh, yeah, he said, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> now, let me give you a quick review of each church's trouble in a way, perhaps, that you can remember. We looked at uh, the church of Ephesus. What was their trouble? Lost priority. A great and busy church it was, but somehow they'd lost the priority of loving Jesus first. Something had replaced Jesus in their hearts even as they sought to serve the Lord. Lost priority. Now we looked at Smyrna and what troubled them. Well, it was trouble from without the church. They were being persecuted, lethal persecution. And many churches across this world are in a similar situation. And thirdly, we came to the church at Pergamum. And what did they have? They had lying prophets. And a prophet like Balaam was seeking to disturb this church and to pervert the truth there. The truth was being twisted and lost in that church. And next we came to Thyatira. And what was their trouble? Lustful passion. They listened to Jezebel, who seduced them sexually. Many churches have lost their way morally, and it often begins with the leaders. What about Sardis, the next church? 
What about them? Lazy passivity. Lazy passivity. They were asleep. They were dead. Just going through the motions. They had the right liturgy, but in their hearts, they were dead. Nothing was going on for Jesus. Philadelphia is the next church down the road. And what did they struggle with? Little power. Now, we don't know what the power shortage was. It could have been a financial power shortage. It could have been that they lacked much of the, of the, 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 uh, the gifting of the Holy Spirit. We don't know what the power shortage was. But you know what? They persevered and they got victory. And today we come to the last church. It's called Laodicea. What about them? We're going to find that their problem was lavish possessions. Lavish possessions. That was their temptation. And they fell into the trap of materialism. Now Laodicea was a big town, a rich town, in the center of Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. It was a banking center, a place where people went to get their loans. It was famous for wool production, especially black wool, which was worn by the upper class. It had a medical school. It was known for its eye medications. Archaeological digs reveal many theaters, stadiums, and baths. So people loved their leisure, living in the lap of luxury. In 60 AD, an earthquake damaged the town, and the townspeople took pride in the fact that they could say no to help from the Roman emperor, and they re rebuilt their town all by themselves. Laodicea reminds us of our own community. Affluent, living the good life, but neglecting the word of God and neglecting the Lord. You know, the church is to be present in all of these communities, but it's to resist the influence of those communities around them. And Laodicea was having trouble resisting the influence of materialism. It says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, John the Apostle wrote 1 John as well as the book of Revelation, and he says, Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, it's not a sin to be rich and to have possessions, any more than it's a sin to be poor and lack possessions and lack money. But riches are very much a temptation to sin. They can be an invitation for us to use our riches for God, or they can be a temptation for us to turn our eyes away from the Lord and get our eyes fixed on money and on possessions and lose sight of Jesus. That is what this verse is warning us against. But the Laodicean Christians did not listen to this warning, even though they must have been often warned by John himself as he visited this church and spoke these very words to them. They began to take on the character of the society around them, and they became materialistic in their thinking and in their behavior. Now, what is materialism? 
Well, it has the idea of material, of physical things. So it's an attitude of heart that believes that the material things are more important for life than the non-material or the spiritual things. Material things of first importance. And you can be spiritual, but just don't make that of first importance because we all know that the material things are more important than the non-material things. That is materialism. So things get measured by money. Security in life is a matter of money. Significance in life is measured by money. Success is determined by money. That is the materialistic worldview. That's the materialistic mindset. And Jesus said this, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 6 and 24. So what's the Lord going to do with this church? Well, he has John write a stern letter. It's Jesus' words, but John writing it as he writes to correct them of this problem. Let's look at our passage in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 to 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, as I, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, as with the other letters that we've studied in the book of Revelation, there's a pattern to the letters that Jesus sends to the churches. First of all, Jesus reveals something of himself, his character, taken from the picture of Christ in Revelation chapter 1. Then there's a commendation. First of all, Jesus' character, and then Jesus' commendation, and then followed by a concern that he has for the church, where he points out their troubles, and next there's a corrective for the trouble, and finally, there is some aspect of Jesus' compassion for that church. So character, commendation, concern, corrective, and compassion. First of all, Jesus' character, it's found in verse 14, 
says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Now that's an interesting name, amen. I've, I've, I've traveled uh, many places in the world, I've never heard anybody called amen. Can you imagine? Amen. What's your name? Amen. What does it mean? Well, we use this word at the end of prayers, but what does it mean? It is connected with the idea of truth and reliability. Interestingly, Jesus often used this word at the beginning of sentences rather than at the end. When he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's saying, amen, amen, I say to you. In Hebrew, he's saying the very same word. Amen is just a transliteration from, from the Hebrew. The word indicates the completely reliable statement of what he's saying. When Jesus says amen, he's saying we must really trust his word, really trust what he's saying. Now when we say amen, we're saying yes, we trust it. So let it be. We agree. Now the church here in Laodicea really needed a big dose of amen. That's what they needed. They needed a dose of truth because they'd lost their way and wandered into ungodly thinking. Now the second description of Jesus' character here in the verse is the faithful and true witness and it just reinforces this idea of amen. He is the faithful and true witness from God. And the next title, the ruler of God's creation, gives even more power to the fact that Jesus is saying amen because he's God. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the ruler of God's creation. He's the boss. As we all know, we should listen to the boss. And then there's Jesus' commendation. Verse 15 and 16. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, some have interpreted this as Jesus telling them that they were only half-hearted or lukewarm, as opposed to being wholehearted. But Jesus would never have desired cold-heartedness. And I'd rather you were cold-hearted than lukewarm. I don't think so. In our Bible study this morning, uh, convened by, by Josiah, we were talking about cold-heartedness and, 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 and being warm-hearted and, and full-hearted for God. Never a condition that Jesus would want for them to be cold. Lukewarm is better than cold when it comes to our desire to serve the Lord. So what does this mean? In every other church, there was something that Jesus could praise them for. Something that they found that was desirable in that church. I remember a while back, a couple uh, showed their baby for the first time. And Kathy and I saw the baby and quite, I, I was quite amazed that this baby had, had much of the likeness of the character Yoda. Great big ears and, and big head. And 
I thought to myself, there's absolutely nothing that I could say right now. <laughs> and so I said, that's a baby. <laughs> what does Jesus mean here? When he says, I know your works. And then he says nothing else. Well, then he adds this word picture of how he's feeling at the time when he sees what they're doing. So when entertaining someone, you ask, what do you want to drink? Something hot or something cold? Because both of those drinks might satisfy somebody. But lukewarm is not an option. You don't say, well, would you like a lukewarm thing? It's not an option because it does not satisfy. In fact, it's nauseating. When you expect hot and you get lukewarm, Nah, I don't think I'll drink that tea. It's lukewarm. Or when you're looking for something really cold and it's lukewarm, no thank you. Or add another ice cube, please. You see, lukewarm is not an option because it, it, it's nauseating. It doesn't satisfy. So Jesus looks at their small efforts to please him and he says, in effect, I'm not pleased with you you nauseate me. You make me sick. Now the Laodiceans might complain that Jesus is hard to please, but Jesus also said this, whoever shall give you a cup of cold water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. This is a measure of what pleases the Lord. Even a cup of cold water given in the name of the Lord to someone who's thirsty. It is because their works as, as a church had not risen even to the level of a cup of cold water in the name of the Lord that he is dissatisfied with them. So you see, the Lord is not pleased with this church. So what is Jesus' concern for them? What, are the, what is the nature of his concerns for them? It says in verse 17, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now see how far off the truth they were in their own estimate of themselves. This is one of the reasons why Jesus was very distressed with this church. Now we're not talking about the townspeople of Laodicea. They were engulfed in materialism. That was their attitude. They were rich, so rich and proud that when their city was damaged by the earthquake, they told the Roman emperor, they didn't need his help, thank you. They could do it themselves. But this is now the church talking, and they're not talking to the Roman emperor, they're talking to the Lord, and they're saying, we got so much good stuff, we don't even need you. Our church is so successful. Our church is so polished. Our church is so uh, uh, beautiful. We don't even need the Lord. There was no sense of neediness for God, no sense of crying out for him. This is what materialism does. It blinds us to the truth of the spiritual state of things. We're not measuring things by God's standard, but by economic standards. Economically, they were just fine, thank you. They don't need a thing. 
but spiritually they were sick and impoverished. I once asked a man who used to have a Christian testimony how he was doing spiritually. And within a few seconds, he had his cell phone out and he was showing me pictures of his new boat and his new boathouse. That was what he was thinking when I asked him how he was doing spiritually. I met a woman whose son was a friend of mine when, when I was a boy. And how is he doing, I inquired. Oh, he's doing wonderfully. He has a successful business and he just finished building his dream home. But how is he doing spiritually? At this, her sadness enveloped her face and she told me how he had abandoned the faith that he once professed. He wasn't going to church anymore. He wasn't bringing his children to Sunday school anymore. I was sad for my childhood friend, but also sad that the woman's first view of her son was not through the lens of Christ. It was through the lens of materialism. So that she could say with a bright heart, you know, he's doing great. He's doing great. No, he's not. Not in Jesus' view. In Jesus' view, he's poor, blind, naked. Look at these words that Jesus uses. First of all, he says, you are wretched and pitiful. Now, wretched means down and distressed. That's what it means. We live in a rich society, but never has there been such an epidemic of anxiety and despair. And that's a paradox. Why does, why does North America need far more psychiatrists than all the rest of the world? It's because we're troubled. We're troubled. That is because riches and possessions do not give lasting happiness. There is the thrill of the initial purchase, but then it wears off, and then we need something else to buy to satisfy us. That is why we have a continuing discontent and a continual desire for more, because riches do not satisfied. Jesus said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. And they said, we're not poor. Look at what we have. But Jesus is talking about spiritual riches, the riches of God and the riches of salvation, the riches of grace and peace and joy from the Lord. And from that perspective, they were way below the poverty line. And it says you're blind. They were blind to spiritual truth because they were looking through the lens of materialism. They thought they were just fine, but they were stumbling around in the dark, wandering far from the Lord because they had their eye on things rather than on the Lord. And Jesus says you're naked. Their fine clothes, the dark wool that they paraded around in, may have impressed each other as they sought to keep pace with the latest fashion, but they no way impressed the Lord. It says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Now these were Jesus' concerns and criticisms of this church. 
But you know what? Jesus is a good doctor. He comes to those who need help. And he offers his medication. He offers his help. Jesus does not just completely forsake them. When it says, I will spew you out of my mouth, doesn't mean that he's forsaking them. It just means that he's displeased with them. I know one young man years ago who argued with me about this passage and said, that's how, that's, that verse shows that you can lose your salvation. No, you can't. But you can certainly lose the Lord's blessing in your life, and he can certainly be, be displeased with you. But he loves you. And we're going to find that out in a minute. But Jesus offers correctives to this church. Look at verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Now, the, the treatments that, and, pres, and correctives Jesus prescribes here would, would have been understood by these believers in Laodicea because they directly counteract the things the Laodiceans were most proud of. They were proud of their gold. They were a banking center. People came to them for money. So Jesus say, is saying that instead of the gold in your banking system and in your bank accounts, I want you to become rich in the gold of heaven. And what is the gold of heaven? Well, we turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7, and we, we read the answer. Peter is talking to Christians going through trials, and he says, these trials have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So what's the gold of heaven? Faith. That's gold in God's eyes. When faith comes out of my heart, and in my neediness I call on the Lord for his grace and for his help, that's faith. And the Lord says, to me, that's gold. I love it when you call on me in your neediness. That's faith. When you trust me for your wants and for your needs to be met. That's gold. How different from the self-sufficiency of these Christians in Laodicea who depended more on their goods than on God, more on their savings than on the Savior, more on their gold than on God's grace. And you know what the language of faith is? It's prayer. You want to know how much faith you have in God's eyes it's how much you're willing to go to him in your need Lord I need thee it's like the old hymn I need thee every hour Lord I need thee that's faith I'm going to trust God to meet me in my need but you see when things are good we have plenty like the Laodiceans our faith can dwindle. We're trusting the stuff, not the Savior. We say, thanks, God, but I've got it from here. I, I can do it, Lord. I don't need you right now. I've got all I need. 
See, we must believe the words of that old hymn truly in our heart. I need thee every hour. Moment by moment, dear Lord, I am thine. He also tells them to buy white clothes to wear so they can cover their shameful nakedness. Verse 18. Now the Laodiceans prided themselves and how they dressed, they made textiles, they made stuff to wear, and uh, that was one of the outstanding things of their town, and they showed off their, their beautiful clothing. Jesus offers spiritual clothing. Now, what do spiritual clothes signify? What does this, this white clothing signify? Now, farther on in the book of Revelation, John tells us the answer. It says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 and 8, For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. The righteous acts of the saints are things done for Jesus by his people, for his pleasure, and by his Spirit's enabling. Now, when I'm caught in the grip of materialism, I'm no longer thinking to live for Jesus and do things for Jesus. It's that continual lust for more that inhabits my heart. And that's where I'm, that's where I'm living. I'm living in that lust. I'm in it for myself. Demas was one of the young followers of Paul in his missionary journeys. He started out so well, but then something happened. He got into the grip of materialistic thinking, and in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Demas, because he loved this world, has forsaken me, has deserted me, and has gone to Thessalonica. I know a man like Demas who started out so well, he even went to Bible school to prepare for a life of Christian service, and he married a lovely Christian girl, but he got into business and found that he could do well. Once again, it's not a sin to be a successful businessman. The Bible says it's the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. But the more successful he became, the less he followed Jesus, the less he did for the Lord until finally it was all business and nothing for Jesus. No time. He became like Demas. He was naked. Nothing to clothe himself with. And then Jesus says, buy from me, I salve, to put on your eyes so you can see. Verse 18. See, people came from far and wide to get the eye salve of Laodicea. Jesus offers them spiritual eye salve for their blindness. The Apostle Paul prays for the believers in this way. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. See, even as Christians, we need, to, we need eye treatments. And Paul says, Lord, give them an eye treatment. Open the eyes of their heart so that they can know the hope to which he has called us. Now, a big, a big part of spiritual sight is foresight. Foresight. The ability to see the future and make plans today based on that sight. We would all want to know beforehand the, the investment that will bear fruit for tomorrow. If only we could have invested in Amazon or Apple back in the day. 
God tells us in his word what will bring reward tomorrow. The Laodiceans were forgetting this future that God says awaits the believer, so they, they weren't hoping in the Lord and living in light of Christ's plans and purposes for them for the future. They were just looking at their stuff. Over the breakfast table in my home growing up was a plaque, a little plaque that, that read, only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That little plaque was spiritual eye salve for me. As I looked at that plaque and read it from time to time, you see, what it was doing was ministering to my eyes, giving me the truth that would sanctify my life and save me from so many things, including materialism. Live your life for Jesus, and you will be eternally blessed, rich in the reward of Christ. So Jesus counsels them to buy these three things from him. Then he goes on to show, him, show them his great compassion. It says in verse 19, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Now in light of all that's been said so far, you might think, well, Jesus is ready to turf this, this uh, a church away from him, spew them out of his mouth. He's not in any way pleased with them. He finds nothing to commend them for. So they're finished. But the next statement in this text is so wonderful. He says, those whom I love. Now, is it possible to be so displeased with somebody and yet love them at the same time? Well, if you've been a parent... You know this to be true, right? That's because love is not a feeling. Love is a commitment to give a blessing. So you can feel very displeased with somebody and yet be committed to love them. I remember when my three brothers and I were fighting and quarreling, and we did that often. My mother would say, you boys make me sick, sorry, and tired. She used those three words, sick, sorry, and tired. You see, she was very displeased with us. But that evening, she still made supper for us, still washed our clothing, still hugged us and sent us off to school. And the very disciplines our parents gave us, painful though they were at the time, were acts of care, of love, designed not to destroy us, but to build us up, this is even more true of our Lord, who's the faithful parent of our souls. We're being trained. We're being disciplined for glory. Now we get three aspects of that discipline, following in quick succession, all demonstrating Jesus' love for, for us. There's a blessing that covers the past. There's a blessing for the present. And there's a blessing for the future. Let's look at these three blessings of love that Jesus gives them. Chapter 3 and verse 9, he says, here's the first one, be earnest and repent. Now, I don't know about you, but I like that word repent. You know what? You know why? Because it means there's a chance to change. That's what repent means, change your mind. And you're given a, they were given a chance to change. We can recover from the sin of materialism and all the selfishness and spiritual ruin of yesterday because God is a God of second chances. 
I love Charles Dickens' story of Ebenezer Scrooge in The Christmas Carol. He was a mean-spirited and miserly old man steeped in materialism, clutching his silver and his gold, and had little else in his life. But by the grace of God, he was given a second chance that night, and he took it, and he became a different man. He repented. Repentance means a change of mind leading to a change of behavior. You know, there is an opportunity that in love and mercy, Jesus gives us to change our ways. And the opportunity covers all of the sins of the past. I need to be willing to call my materialism sin and say, Lord, I've, I've got that disease. Please forgive me and cleanse me. And we can start afresh with the Lord. And then there's a blessing of relationship for, for today and for each day. He says, and this is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, and if you're going to memorize any verse in the book of Revelation, revel uh, memorize chapter 3 and verse 20. This is a great one. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. This is the blessing of daily relationship. Not just, not just repentance, but relationship. This is the second gift. Not only can we get past our past, but Jesus' compassion is expressed in an even more wonderful way. He says, now I want to come into your life and I, and I want to interact with you just like two friends sitting over the lunch counter and, and talking with one another. I want to be like that to you. And he's talking to the church, you see, and the church who thought they had such a wonderful communion going on, but really Jesus was outside the door of the church, and he said, I, I want in. And I'm called, I want in. I, I want to be at, at the center of your fellowship. Don't fellowship around your funds. Fellowship around the Lord. This is the secret. This is the secret of the Christian life. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. If you've not trusted in the Lord today, this is what Jesus offers. Now, this is a gospel verse, it's true. It's a wonderful gospel verse because Jesus is talking to people who are not Christians and they surely have, have that, that distance from God. That God is not in their life. The door to their heart is closed and open your heart's door and let Jesus come in. That's a gospel invitation. But you see, in the context, he's not talking to non-Christians, he's talking to Christians, and he's saying, you're my children, but you're not with me, and I'm not with you because you shut me out, you're too busy with your stuff. Let me in. Let me in each day. Talk with me, walk with me, share with me, call on me, express your neediness to me, and I will fill your heart. That's what the Christian life is all about. It's walking with Jesus, fellowship with a Savior over the table of, at the table of fellowship. That's the secret of happy living. It's not the accumulation of earthly riches. It's walking and talking and trusting in Jesus. Lord Jesus, we welcome you into our gathering at Oak Ridge Bible Chapel this morning. May you be the honored guest. May we commune with you 
and may you be pleased to commune with us. The corrective for materialism is to fall in love once again with the Savior, to open our hearts to him and fellowship with him today and every day. This brings the security we long for, the significance we seek, and the greatest measure of success in any day, living in communion, in communion with the Lord God. It's reserved for those believers who seek that communion with Jesus every day, who open the heart's door and let him in as the honored guest. But there's one more gift of Jesus' love and compassion. It has to do with the future. And it says in verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Here's a great promise that Jesus gives for the future, that of sitting with him on his great throne at the center of the universe and sharing in his glory. What's the purpose of all this pain? I feel like ending it. A discouraged young Christian man said to me not long ago. He was going through a very tough time in his life, medically and, and financially. He was asking a legitimate question. But there is a wonderful answer in God's word. It's found here. The real success in life is not the, the glory that comes from material success or the security that it offers. Rather, it's sharing in the glory of Christ and his kingdom. It says in Romans 8, 17, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. Just as the promise of, of communion is for those open uh, hearts who receive the Lord every day, so the promise of future glory is reserved for those who choose to live for him every day. Whether it is in pleasure or in pain, but especially in pain, will every believer get to glory? Yes. Will every believer be an overcomer and sit with the Lord on his throne and enjoy this this, this blessing for the future? No. It's for the overcomer. It's for those who say no to material advantage at the expense of, of their spiritual life. It's for those who say, Jesus first. And I don't care how much sacrifice that involves. And for some, you see, it means giving up all their riches. Jesus asked the rich young ruler to give up everything. You see, you see, he doesn't ask us to do that. He asks us just to put Jesus first and then use our riches for the kingdom of God. Jesus first, and you will be an overcomer. So repent of materialism. No progress is made until I agree with the diagnosis and apply the right treatment. Lord, I need your forgiveness for this one. It's one of my sins. It's been one of my sins. I am repenting of the sin of materialism. I'm going to tell you how. I grew up in a, in a home that lived on the edge of poverty, but we made it through. But I always had a fear of being in want. When I became a missionary and Kathy and I went to the mission field and we relied on others for the provision of our needs, there was a glorious freedom because I didn't have to handle money because, you see, that's the thing that got me. When I came home, I was given that responsibility once again. 
You got to handle your money. And then that old fear of not having enough. Not the desire to become super rich. That's not been in my heart. It's in the heart of some. But the fear of not having enough. Fear of running out. Of missing out. Of being in want. And that fear generated such a conflict in my life. Such a conflict that at times, you see, I was guilty of the sin of materialism because I was relying on money for that security of life. That's why they call money securities. Now, I am in recovery. You know, it's like the, the, at Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I, I, you're Jim, and I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a materialist in recovery. Because I'm having to discipline, and the Lord is having to discipline me, and I'm having to discipline my life to put Jesus first because of that fear, you see. Oh, security is money. What about you? Got to call it sin. And then you dedicate, you see, after you've said, Lord, forgive me, I repent. I dedicate my money and I dedicate everything for the Lord, for his glory. Lord, if you take it away tomorrow, that's okay because it's yours first. You've got to dedicate your stuff to God. Dedicate your stuff to God. Who owns it? God owns it. It's God's money. It's God's house. It's God's cars. It's God's business. Everything's God's. And then you pray for the wisdom and the grace to handle God's resources. You say, Lord, this is your money that I'm making. How, how, would you give me the wisdom to know how to, to handle it? And then lastly, be a great giver. Be a great giver. Use your money for the kingdom. Use your money. Use your possessions. Use your home for the kingdom. Use what you have to honor the Lord. And then money will not be the chief end of things. Money will be a means of honoring God. And that's good. That's the good thing. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.